Shalom, everybody. Oh, I know we can do a lot better than that. So we're going to have to try that one more time, this time with a bit more enthusiasm. Please, shalom. Shalom. Uh, You know what? We're going to have to try that one more time. That was better. But that's usually the first one that I get. So we're trying that one final time, okay? I want you to feel comfortable with me. I mean, you've got shalom on the wall here on one of your beautiful banners, and so you know the word. So one more time. Shalom. Thank you. Now you are finally making a nice Jewish boy and girl feel at home. It's really a pleasure and a privilege for us, Pastor, to be with you here this morning at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. I'm going to be sharing a number of things with you this morning, including Christ and the Passover, and a little bit about the work of Jews for Jesus. But I thought that it might be appropriate, I kind of discuss this, with Pastor Tony, that I would share with you how it is that I, as a Jewish person, came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thirty-plus years ago, I was living in New York City. That's where I was born and raised. At that time, I didn't believe in God or the Bible. And Jews for Jesus held something known as a summer witnessing campaign. What this means is that a group of people were gathered together, and they drove across country from the San Francisco Bay Area to New York. When they arrived in New York, they were handing out pamphlets that look a lot like this one. This one says, beware of religious fanatics, handing out pamphlets. (laughs) I received one of these pamphlets 30 plus years ago. And if you ask me now whether or not I read the tract that I received back then, I'd have to say I don't remember. The only thing I do remember was getting rid of that tract shortly afterwards and not hearing anything again about Jews for Jesus for the following three months. Well, within that three-month period, I moved to Southern California. Just out of curiosity, how many of you know anything about Southern California? Okay, well, there are quite a few of you, actually. Well, when I came to California, I had no family, no friends, no job waiting for me, nothing but one contact through somebody I worked with back in New York. Well, I approached that contact on coming to California. He told me all the places where I shouldn't live. He said, first of all, don't move to Hollywood because you've got a bunch of weirdos living there. And then he said, don't move to the San Fernando Valley because you get extremes of temperature there. And then he said, don't move to the San Gabriel Valley because you get lots of smog there. Well, he kept telling me all the places where I shouldn't live, but he never did get around to telling me where I should. And not knowing Southern California at all at that time, I ended up in Hollywood with all of the weirdos. Now, two of the so-called weirdos that I ended up with in Hollywood were the people who managed the apartment building where I was living. I call them weird. They were English people, middle-aged, in their 50s, they were Jewish, and they believed in Jesus. Well, you know, when I first met them, I found out all about them, but the fact that they believed in Jesus. They didn't want to share anything about that at the time because they thought that they would have offended me. Well, really, they wouldn't have offended me because, you see, my parents brought me up believing that Jesus was a great man, possibly a prophet. But they also reminded me that he wasn't the son of God because why on earth would God need to have a son? Well, the managers and I became friends, and I was living in this building about a month. And one evening, the managers invited me over to their apartment. Now, it just so happened to be the same night that they invited the man and his wife, who had come to Los Angeles at that time, to establish the first branch of Jews for Jesus. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, what these people did was they set me up. (laughs) Now, being set up, if it's for the right reason, is not a bad thing. What we discovered that night when I met these people who were also originally from New York was the fact that we had friends in common back in New York, even though we'd never met one another. And I thought, wow, what a coincidence. 
Well, as Mr. Schroeder, who is here this morning, can tell you, because we had a conversation before, I have learned that with God there is no such thing as coincidence. Well, we became friends. Now, the night I met these folks, all I knew was that they were from New York. I didn't know who they were, what they believed, and what they wanted me to believe. And so later on, we'd become friends. And so I found myself sitting in their dining room for dinner a couple of weeks later. Now, I'm going to be talking a lot about tradition this morning, but here's a tradition you might not otherwise know. And that is, in a traditional Jewish home, if you have prayer around mealtime, you don't pray before you eat. You pray at the end of the meal. Well, these people that night prayed before we ate. And to top it all off, they prayed in the name of Jesus, their Messiah. Well, that night I discovered who they were, what it was that they believed, what they wanted me to believe, and I said, wait one cotton-picking minute. I'm Jewish. Jews don't believe in Jesus. I was really upset. You get it? I was really upset. But, you know, these were nice people, and I'm a nice guy. And so, you know, we discussed it. And Jewish people will get this way with one another, and it's no big deal. Well, later on that night, they told me that they were starting a Bible study on Friday nights. I said, great, that's good for you, but I am so not interested. I am so not interested. And back then, I used to work in a bank, and I used to work late on Friday nights, and I had great excuses why I couldn't go to this Bible study. But they kept inviting me. And I kept making excuses, and they kept inviting me. And I started running out of excuses, and they kept inviting me. And after a while, I thought, well, what's the worst that's going to happen to me if I go to this Bible study? Well, now you know. <laughs> but, I mean, it, you know, it didn't happen just like that. I went one time. My curiosity was satisfied. I knew what they believed. I knew what I believed. And the one thing I knew for sure was that it wasn't the same thing. So now you're wondering, well, why did you go back to that Bible study? And I did. Let me tell you why I went back to that Bible study. You know, when I came here yesterday with my wife, Pastor Tony was here, Craig was here, Brother Lyle was here, Jacob was here, Tyler was here. These guys were so gracious to us. They have been so gracious to us. They have so demonstrated the fact that they care about us. Well, when I went to that first Bible study, that's what was happening there. And I couldn't understand what was behind that demonstration? And I was determined to find out what was behind it. Because believe you me, I did not believe it had anything to do with Jesus. Well, three months later, I was still going to that Bible study, trying to figure it out. Of course, by then, I was starting to study the Bible on my own. And by then, I'd kind of come to the conclusion that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But I had one slight problem. Actually, two. Mom and Dad. You know, if you're a young Jewish person and you decide you want to become a surfer, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, your parents are going to be relatively happy. You're that same young Jewish person and you decide you want to become a Christian. There aren't too many Jewish families who would be overjoyed with that kind of news. Well, I denied my faith. But let me tell you what else I learned back then. And that is that God got a hold of me. And when God gets a hold of you, he doesn't let you go. How many of you have experienced that? Okay, a lot of you. There's some here who may not have experienced that yet. But you know what? If you're here this morning, let me tell you, God's got a hold of you. You're not here for any reason other than the fact that God's got a hold of you. March 8th, 1975, so that tells you how long ago this was, I gave my life to him. Now, my testimony doesn't end there because remember those two problems? Now I had to tell those two problems what I had done. And it took about a month before I finally drew up enough what I call chutzpah to tell them what I believe. <laughs> now, in case you don't know, chutzpah is a Jewish way of saying holy guts. 
Now, the first time we talked about this on the telephone, I was convinced that my family didn't understand what I was telling them because they did not get upset. We spoke again a week or two later, and we had what I've now called an hour-long, long-distance fight. None of us remember anything of this conversation. The only thing I remember was telling my parents how I could still be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And you know what they said to me? Oy vey. How did we fail? Where did we go wrong? Well, you know, I can laugh about that today. I couldn't laugh about that then. You see, both of my parents are Holocaust survivors. Oh. It was no laughing matter for them to discover that their firstborn son had come to faith in Christ because what they thought that I was going to continue the work that Hitler had begun. Oh. Well, you know, I've said enough about myself already, but just as I close my testimony, let me tell you this. Before the end of that same year, 1975, my father, my brother, and my, my mother came to faith in Christ. Now, that doesn't happen very often. But we have a great God. We have a God of miracles. I still believe in miracles. I hope you believe in miracles because God has performed a miracle in my family. And I'm sure that many of you can attest to the same thing. So enough about me. I want to draw your attention to the table set before you. Because what you see before you this morning is a typical table setting found in millions of Jewish homes throughout the world at Passover. There are three things that I'd like for us all to see here this morning. One is Christ, the bread of life. Two is Christ, the Lamb of God. And three are the elements of redemption found in the Passover. Once again, that's Christ, the bread of life. Christ, the Lamb of God, and the elements of redemption found in the Passover. If you have a Bible with you, and even if you don't, there are Bibles in the pew racks, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 13. Now, I've got to tell you that I'm really excited because my wife and I go to literally dozens, lots of dozens of churches around the country sharing the gospel, sharing this presentation. And there aren't too many that I find that are doing the kind of studies that you guys are doing. I hear about studies in Leviticus. I hear about studies in Deuteronomy. I hear about studies in Isaiah. I am so excited that you guys are studying the Old Testament scriptures. How important, how important it is for you to do that. I want to tell you something else. All four of the Gospels give an account of the, of the Passover. But the book of Luke is unique. And the reason why I say it's unique is because it stresses something. If you listen to me as I read... Or if you're reading along with me, you'll notice one particular word that's mentioned four times in this short passage. Now, I'm reading from a New American Standard Version. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Go, um, he said to them, <clears throat> Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, before I tell you the one word that was mentioned four times in that short passage, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Uh, one of the things that you'll discover about me this morning is that I'm someone who believes in congregational participation. You see, I don't believe that Christianity is a spectator sport. 
So I want your involvement with me this morning. I didn't ask you, Pastor Tony, if I could ask people to speak out in church, but I get the feeling here there's not a problem. Okay. So here's my first question. How many of you know that or understood that, you know, I'm, I'm reading from this passage of Scripture, and how many of you know the fact that in Jesus' day in Jerusalem there lived about a million people? Okay, well, there's a few of you who knew that. Don't you think it's strange, here's my second question, that Jesus would have gone ahead, as he did in that passage of Scripture, and told his disciples to go and find one man in the city of Jerusalem who was carrying a pitcher of water. Do you think that's strange? It's not strange. It's not strange at all, because, you see, in Jesus' day, it was women's work to carry water. Oh, so you see, when the disciples came upon one man who was carrying water, they knew that they'd come upon the right person, whom they were to follow and where they were to, quote, unquote, prepare the Passover. The word prepare or preparation was the one word mentioned four times in that short passage. Preparation for the Passover today might begin one week in advance, two weeks in advance, even a month in advance. And what will happen at this time will be that the houses must be cleansed. Now, they'll not only have to be cleansed of your usual dust and dirt, but they'll also have to be cleansed of a substance known as leaven. This is a piece of unleavened bread. We call it matzah. Now, how many of you know what the Apostle Paul says that leaven usually represents? Sin. Being unleavened means that the bread is without sin. Therefore, in a sense, it should remind us of our Lord Jesus, who also was unleavened without sin. Now, this is not only the holiday of Passover, but it's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's for eight days that this is the only type of bread which we may eat in a Jewish home. This means that you have to get rid of a few things, such as your hostess Twinkies, your Wonder Bread, even your Oreo cookies have to go. Oh, let me tell you something. If you're a diehard Oreo cookie eater like I am, Passover can be a traumatic experience for you. Now, let me tell you something else, and this may make some of you happy and others of you sad. Do you know in a Jewish home, it is not the woman's responsibility to see that the house is clean? I feel like I'm hearing the ladies, you know. Well, before you get too excited, ladies, if you're not Jewish, it doesn't apply to you. Let me tell you, in my home today, And in the home of many of my Jewish brethren, the lady of the house will still do much of the hard house cleaning. (laughs) And it's not your once a week kind of cleaning that gets done at this time. It's a real special cleaning when the whole house is clean from top to bottom. The walls and the floors and the cupboards and the cabinets. You know, many people paint their home at this time. And in fact, where do you think the spring cleaning comes from? If not, the Passover. Well, you see, because it is the man's responsibility to see that the house is clean, the day before Passover, the mother will leave a token piece of leaven, maybe the breadcrumbs from that morning's toast, someplace in the house for the man to find. That night, the father comes home from work, and he takes his youngest son on what we in Jews for Jesus call a GI inspection. They take some really strange cleaning utensils, such as a wooden spoon, a feather, and a white linen napkin. And they go throughout the house and they search out the leaven. And they look high and low under the tables. Maybe they'll come to the top of the windowsill there and they'll see those breadcrumbs. And what he'll do is he'll take the feather and he'll sweep the crumbs into the spoon. 
Then being careful not to drop any of it, he'll wrap it all in this white linen napkin. Then the father and his son will proceed to go to the center of town, to the local synagogue, where they'll find other men and their sons. And they'll be waiting around a huge bonfire. And they'll be waiting. And they'll be waiting. And they'll be waiting for the rabbi to come. You see, once the rabbi arrives, he'll say a blessing over all of these things, and all the men will toss it into the fire. Thus, at this point, the houses will be considered hygienically clean. Then the father will go home and take off his jacket, if he's wearing one, and he'll put on something that looks like this. This is called a kittle. It's a white, kingly robe. You see, in Judaism... White symbolizes royalty. It's also a symbol of purity and joy, not purple as in many churches, but white. In addition to putting on the kittle, he'll also pick up a cap that looks like this. Now, this is called a mitre or a cantor's cap, and if placed on the head properly, it should resemble a crown. For you see, the man is considered to be the king of his house, and his wife is considered to be his queen. Then he proceeds to pick up a book that looks like this. Now, this is called a Haggadah. Can you all say that? Okay, that sounds like the first, the first of three shalom's. We're going to have to try that again, okay? Because, you know, one of the things you're going to come away with is knowing some Hebrew words, okay? So the word was Haggadah. Much better. Now, Haggadah means the telling or the telling of the story of Passover. The father opens this to the first page. Now, you might be wondering, uh, is he opening this book backwards? I mean, if you look at this book carefully, you're going to see it's beautifully illustrated. It tells the whole story of Passover. It has songs and prayers within. And one of its characteristics is that it's a book that's written both in Hebrew and in English. The English portion, of course, is written from left to right. The Hebrew portion is written from right to left. You tell me which has been around longer, Hebrew or English. Hebrew, of course. Now, the father turns to the first page. This is what he reads. Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to search out the leaven. All manner of leaven that is in my possession that I have not observed, searched out, or had cognizance of shall be regarded as null and be common property even as the dust of the earth. Thus, at this point, the houses are considered not only hygienically clean, but considered spiritually clean as well. And it's at this time that we can begin what's called the Seder. Now, Seder means service or order of service. As we begin the Seder, we first need to light the candles. But before we light those candles, I have a few more questions to ask you. First of all, up until this point, who's been doing all the hard work? The woman, right? And who's been having all the fun and getting all the credit? The man. Well, that's not fair, is it? Did I hear some man say it was? (laughs) Is there a man who thinks it's fair who will raise his hand for women to do all the hard work? Will you identify yourself? I think you have a smart group of men here. It's not fair. And it's only appropriate that the woman should light the candles to bring in the Passover. For you see, it wasn't through the seed of man or the will of man that the light of the world came in, but rather... It was through the seed of woman and the will of God that Jesus entered the world and was a light to that world. So I'm going to ask my wife, Janie, to come, and she is going to light the candles for us. And then 
I will continue the presentation right after that. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us concerning the lighting of the Passover candle. Amen. Amen. Now you see before you four cups. Each one of the cups is taken at an appropriate time during the Passover. Each one of the cups has a specific name. The four cups just by themselves represent a fourfold promise. That promise is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And while we won't look there this morning, if you're taking notes, and I welcome you doing that, you might like to look up that scripture reference later on and write it down. Now, also, in your bulletins this morning, you should have gotten a brochure that's called Christ in the Passover. Now, that's something for you to take with you, of course. I don't want you so much looking at it now because I don't want it to distract from what I'm trying to do with you this morning. But it will go through a number of things we're talking about. Now, I'd like to share with you the names of those cups and tell you when during the Passover Seder that they are um, taken. The first cup is called the cup of blessing. The second cup is called the cup of affliction or plagues. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is called the cup of hallel, or praise. Going back to this first cup, this is called the cup of blessing. And a blessing is chanted over the cup. This is how it goes. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, Barei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. The first cup, known as the cup of blessing, many times today is confused with the communion cup which Jesus passed amongst his disciples at that last supper, which incidentally was a Passover celebration. But no, truly, this is the cup of blessing. Now you see before you what's commonly called a Seder plate. Now if you look at this plate closely, you're going to notice that it has six compartments to it. The six compartments correspond to the items that are found here on the table. Normally, the items are in little glass dishes, and they're placed right on the plate. But in order for you to see what the plate looks like, that's why I've kept all those items off to the side. At this point, I'd like to explain the items to you and to tell you what the rabbis say they represent. This first item is called karpas greens, usually parsley, celery, or lettuce. Now, the rabbis tell us that these greens are to represent life. This next item, which is something that is not found on the Seder plate, but is on the table at Passover, all it is is ordinary salt water. And the rabbis say that the salt water is to represent tears. At the appropriate time, we're told to take from the greens, which represent life, dip them into the salt water, which represents tears, and eat. Because the rabbis say that life is immersed in tears. This next item, bitter herbs. You call it horseradish. We call it Jewish Claritin. (laughs) I, I don't know if any of you have sinus problems. 
But if you do, after the service, come up and take one whiff of this, and I promise you'll be cleared up for a couple of hours. Now, the rabbis say that the bitter herb is to represent bitterness, the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. And at the appropriate time, we're told to take a piece of the unleavened bread, and then we're told to take a good, healthy portion, usually about a tablespoonful. Now, I normally, at this point, like to ask for an adult volunteer. <laughs> because, you know, it's... Boy, there's an awful lot of you guys who are really ready to... Devol- really? Well, no thank you. But, you know, I don't usually get such, such, you know, such a response. Usually what I do is I find the gentleman who thinks it's fair for the women to do all the hard work. You're pointing at somebody. Did he say it was fair? He did. Okay, well... I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, the other thing that is always my fallback when I don't get a volunteer and I can't get someone to come up, you know, who thinks it's fair, is I go to the pastor. <laughs> now, you probably figured that was coming, didn't you? I like you an awful lot. And I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be a chance at some point in the future for me to come back. So I think I will not do this to you. Okay, so we are told to take a tablespoonful Wow, indeed. They will, but I won't. (laughs) You know, if you take that much horseradish at one time, a strange physiological reaction comes over you. You begin to cry. Tears roll down your face profusely. Why? Because it's to remind us of the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment. You need to know something about me. I know I've told you a lot about me already. I do not do stand-up. My time here is not designed for me to get you to laugh about everything that I'm doing. The Passover is an object lesson. And believe it or not, my Jewish people have been doing a semblance of the Passover Seder, albeit with additions, for the last 3,500 years. And it's the way we've been able to hand down the truths of the Passover from generation to generation to generation. Now, the other thing that you need to know is that the Passover is a, very much a family time. It's when people get together. And because of the heaviness, because of all of the seriousness, we do break up that time with a little bit of laughter as well. Because it does, as you'll see, celebrate the redemption that we have. So, that bitter herb is to represent the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. This next item is what we call charoset. Now, charoset is generally a mixture of chopped up apples, nuts, raisins, honey, a little bit of wine giving it a really sweet flavor. And the rabbis say that this sweet mixture is to represent the mortar that went into building the pyramids and the storehouses for Pharaoh. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how could something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? I mean, after all, it's easy to understand how the greens can represent life. The salt water, tears, even that bitter herb, bitterness. But why would something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? Well, you know what the rabbis say? They say that even the bitterest of labor tasted sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near. The next element is a hard-boiled roasted egg. Now, this hard-boiled roasted egg is to represent the daily temple sacrifice. Let me explain what I mean. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Now, the temple was the only place where the Jewish people were allowed to make a sacrifice. When the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people could no longer make a sacrifice. Therefore, they've taken the symbol of an egg, which is given, generally speaking, once a day, yes, in the morning, 
and they roast it with fire, just as that daily temple sacrifice had been given once a day in the morning and roasted with fire. This next element is a bitter root, usually an onion or a horseradish root. Now, the rabbis tell us that this bitter root is to represent the way that we come into the world. You see, it's through sin and pain that we enter the world. Therefore, this is to represent the bitter root of life. The final element normally found on a Seder plate is this. And this is an actual shank bone of a lamb. And it's to represent the lamb that was slain for us at Passover. Now, let me bring you back to that first Passover. You'll remember that God commanded the people to have their loins girded, sandals on their feet. They were to not sit down during the Passover feast. But why did they do that? Because God commanded Moses to take a yearling lamb without spot or blemish, to take the lamb and to slay it, and to collect its blood in a basin, then to take a green spongy material, hyssop to be exact, to dip the hyssop into the blood, and to place the blood on the two side posts and the top lintel of the door. That's the two side posts and the top lintel of the door, thus sealing the house with the blood of the lamb. The night of Passover came, and the death angel flew, and he came upon the houses that were sealed with the blood of the lamb, and he he passed over. That's exactly where we got the name for our holiday. Now, at this point, we come to the second cup. This was called the cup of affliction or plagues. Now, we don't drink from this cup. At first, what we do is we take our finger and we drop a drop for each one of the plagues which God brought upon Pharaoh. And the plagues went something like this. Blood, frogs, hail, lice, moraine, flies, boils, locusts, darkness, and death to the firstborn. And as I said, we would recall that first Passover, and I've already pointed out to you that God commanded the people through Moses to take a yearling lamb without spot or blemish and to slay it and collect its blood in a basin. So you know what the Jewish people did at that first Passover. That, in part, is why the bread, the unleavened bread that they ate, was eaten because there was no time for the bread, for the leaven to rise. And so this is also why that bread is eaten at the time and that we have no Passover sacrifice any longer because today the temple was destroyed. So Jewish people cannot make sacrifice any longer. So that's why we take the symbol of the Passover lamb that's used to point out the redemption that we have in the Messiah, Jesus. Now, at this point, we come to a really favorite time of Jewish people, and it's the meal. And it's not that the meal is in a wonderful time of feasting and celebration. The problem is that too much emphasis has been placed on the meal rather than on the rest of the beauty and the significance of the Passover. Before I tell you the kinds of things that you'd get to eat at Passover, I want to share with you one of the many traditions. This is known as the tradition of the matzotash. This is a matzotash or matzah bag. And if you look at this carefully, you're going to notice that it has three compartments to it. Notice. One. Two. And then there is a third one right here. Now, if you were to ask two or three rabbis what this unity represented, you might get two or three different answers. One might say that it represents the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Another might say that it represents the order of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people. We, however, as Jewish believers in Jesus, feel that this this matzotash represents our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, before the meal begins, the Father will take from the middle piece of matzah. And who would that represent? The Son. He'll take it and he'll break it. The smaller portion he'll put back in the matzotash. This larger portion is very important. This larger portion is known as the afikomen. Afikomen is a Greek word which means dessert or that which comes after. The father will take this and what he'll do is he'll wrap it in a piece of white linen. Then he'll hide it or if I might bury it till later on in the service. Now you may be wondering the significance of those pillows besides the fact that they hide the afikomen. Well, if you recall that first Passover with me, once again, you'll remember that God commanded the people to have their loins girded, sandals on their feet. They were to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. In fact, the Jewish people, as I was saying before, at that first Passover partook standing up because they were in terrible fear that at any moment they would be sent out of the land. Well, those pillows represent the fact that today... As we participate in the Passover, we can do so sitting back, reclining at table. Why? Because we don't have the fear that one such as Pharaoh would usher us out of the land. Now, at this point, we come to the meal. And let me share with you the kinds of things that you'd get to eat at Passover. You might start off with appetizers. And you'd have such things as chopped chicken livers and onions. Eggs and onions. Gefilte fish and onions. If you need to know what some of these things are, you can speak with us afterwards. Then there's a main course where you'll have a number of different types of meats and vegetables. Then there are numerous desserts which follow. But you know, the Passover cannot be complete without everyone taking from the afikomen. Now here's another bit of information for you. Do you know that in a traditional Jewish home, a Passover Seder like this takes between two and four hours? How many of you knew that? Not too many of you. Well, let me tell you, it takes between two and four hours. So by the time you get to this portion of the Passover, there isn't anyone who can sit still any longer, but especially the children. So a game was developed in the centuries following Christ's advent here on earth, known as the Afikomen Hunt. And it's at this time, at the end of the meal, when the children are sent throughout the house to search out the Afikomen. And the child who finds it gets a chance to bring it back and pay a reward for it. Once a reward has been paid... The head of the house will take it, he'll unwrap it, he'll bless it, and then he'll break it. And he'll break it into at least olive-sized pieces, passing it around to the people sitting at the table with him. And you see, it has to be in at least an olive-sized piece, because the rabbis say that nothing smaller than an olive-sized piece may be blessed. Well, you know, Jesus took this bread as well at that Last Supper. He took it. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, I want to point out a few things about this bread that I think you'll find very interesting. The first thing I said about it before was that it was unleavened. That reminded us of Jesus because he too was unleavened without sin. Then you notice I took the middle piece of matzah. And I broke it. A portion of it I wrapped in a piece of white linen. Then it was hidden or buried for a time. Then it was brought back after having been paid for with a price. Who else do you know who was unleavened, broken, wrapped in white linen, 
buried for a time, brought back after having been paid for with a price. And then, of course, on top of all of that, if you look at this bread, and I know you won't all be able to see this, but if you look at this bread before the candle, you may be able to see from where you're sitting that it's striped and it's pierced. Can you see that from where you're sitting? The bread is striped and it's pierced. In the Gospel of Isaiah, and I always call it gospel because it's good news, in the Gospel of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, it speaks of one who was to come, who was to be pierced through for our transgressions. He was to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and with his stripes we are we are healed. Who does this bread remind you of, if not our Lord Jesus? And then we come to the third cup, and this was called the cup of redemption. And today the head of the house will take this cup. He'll chant a blessing as I did earlier. He'll drink from the cup. He'll pass it around to everyone sitting at the table with him, and all will drink of this cup. And all will recall the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Well, you know, Jesus took this cup as well at that last supper, at that Passover meal. He took this cup along with this bread. He blessed it. He poured it out for his disciples, and he said, Take, drink. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you in the New Covenant, the New Testament. This do in remembrance of me. And all his disciples drank. And all his disciples recalled the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But you know, they began to understand that he was speaking of a far greater redemption. That being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. Now, I'm not sure how many of you recognize what I just pointed out to you. But in case you didn't, what I've just pointed out is a typical communion service found right within the traditional Jewish Passover. How unfortunate that more of my own Jewish people don't see the significance of Christ within their own Passover. Now, you may be wondering the significance of this cup. This is Elijah's cup. And in Jewish tradition, it's said that Elijah must come first to usher in the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, every year we have disappointed children and disappointed adults. Why? Because Elijah does not come. I mean, we have a full place sitting out there. But Elijah does not come. I mean, it's traditional that the children are sent to the door to open it. For it said Elijah would come, and that would be the way we would know the Messiah is coming that year. Well, as I said, every year we have those disappointed children and disappointed adults. But we believe that one has already come in the power and the spirit of Elijah, that being John the Baptist. One day John was baptizing in the Jordan River and he beheld a bronze-bearded Jew coming over the face of a mountain and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the what? The sin of the world. John the Baptist truly was our Elijah. And then we come to the fourth and the final cup. And this is called the cup of Hallel or praise. Hallel being a shortened version of... Hallelujah. And it's at this time that we sing praises to our God, not only for the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but that greater redemption, that being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. I want to close this portion of the service with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't need to turn there. I want you to actually listen to me because I believe that these verses capture the entire spirit of the Passover. See if you agree with me. Beginning in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Pastor. Consider this morning that 1,500 years before Christ, people would sit at this table. They would celebrate the God of the Bible who came and freed them from captivity, who had uh, been so gracious to them and so caring toward them, who had done what they could never have hoped to do for themselves. And they would celebrate this Passover meal, commemorating the time that death had passed over them because they had taken the blood of the Lamb and they had spread it across the doorpost. And in the midst of this celebration, there was no way that they could have ever imagined what God would ultimately do. How God would finally and permanently redeem His people. How He would send His own Son to be that very Lamb, that sacrifice. But what you need to see this morning is the lengths to which God has gone to reveal Himself to us. That 1,500 years earlier, He would put together such detail. He would take such care so that we today would be able to look back in amazement and marvel at the goodness of God. And it tells us about our Heavenly Father. It tells us about His desire to be known. That He's not a God who, who hides Himself from us. He's not a God who, who plays some game with people, who, who is always uh, concealing Himself. But He's a God who is utterly and completely declaring His love for people across history from the very beginning. And this morning, we're here. We're here. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would not miss. It's more than just symbolism. It's more than just uh, an astonishing set of facts or information. It tells us about our God. It, it declares His purpose and intention from the very beginning was always to do exactly that which He did. And He wants us to know Him. He wants each and every one of us in here this morning, to know Him, to know Him as our Messiah, to be able to, to say this morning that, behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. We're heading right into the Easter season. Before we begin to celebrate 
the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, I hope in your heart, it's the intention of Jesus. It is the, it is the painstaking intention of detail to say, I love you. I've always loved you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever would open the door and let me in, I will come and dine with you. So as we stand in this moment, I want us to take a moment and stand and and bow our heads and just reflect on this Passover. Reflect on the reality of Christ and what we've seen and heard. And I want to challenge each and every one of you to respond to what God has shown you this morning. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He's declaring to you, He is the Lamb who has come to pay the penalty once and for all for the sin of the world. And that, listen, as His people, Death has passed over us. We don't need to fear death. We sorrow when one of our own brothers and sisters in Christ goes on. We sorrow because we are left here and we miss them, but we don't sorrow for them. Death has been passed over. Their debt has been paid. And their glory is secure and ours is too. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, your heart should be just overflowing with gratitude and with joy. That today we have the freedom to walk and to live and to be all that God allowed us to be because of the price that He paid. We can know, Father, I thank you today. I thank you for the glorious gift of your scripture. I thank you for the way in which we can stand and marvel at a God who would take such time and such energy to give his people the full assurance and confidence that your word is true. That your purpose is eternal. And Lord God, that your love is unchangeable. Father, today we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that in this moment you would give us the courage. The courage to be able to respond to a Savior. A Savior who has come and revealed Himself. The same Savior that called a young Jewish man unto Himself. The same Savior that used His testimony to bring His mother and father who had survived the Holocaust to the realization that despite all the odds, to despite all the the things that the world would have us to believe, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we thank you this morning. So, Father, will you do in this time what only you can do? Holy Spirit, come and work in our hearts. We are so very grateful. We are so, 
blessed to be able to be called your people. And Lord, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name. The altar's open. I invite you to come. Come and, and kneel before the Lord. Just thank Him for what you've seen and experienced this morning. Pray for those around you. If I can pray for you or one of the other pastors can pray for you, we're here and we'd love to do that. But if you're struggling this morning with doubt or with fear, there's things you don't understand. Come, let us pray for you. Let us encourage you this morning. Come to the one who is calling you to the greatest gift, gift beyond our wildest imagination, salvation. So you come.